0: As we begin this afternoon, I want us to remember the foundation that was, Ray, was, was laid rather, by Ray in week one. In week one, we saw that work is not the meaning of life, but it is meaningful. Last week, we saw with Bill that even though work is meaningful, it's also frustrating. It's frustrating because of the curse, because of sin. So we have, if you like, this meaningful task of work that comes with frustration. So the question I want us to think about today is how? How then do we work? And I want us to see that we work with five things in place. The first thing that we need to put in its place is the what. That is what work we do. Come with me to a surprising place in the New Testament, to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It's the chapter that is all about marriage. And in it, Paul spells out a principle that he expects to shape the way that the Corinthians live, not just their marriages, but their lives. He writes in 1 Corinthians 17, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all of the churches. It's not just for you, the Corinthians. It's for everyone. And then he applies the principle. He applies it to circumcision in verses 18 and 19. And then he restates the principle in verse 20. Each one of you should remain in the condition in which he was called. That is, wherever you were when you became a follower of Jesus, stay there. He then applies it to slaves, to bond servants, and at this point, can I just say, slavery is rightly highly emotive. It comes with an enormous amount of hurt and baggage. It deserves more than just a few comments in a sermon. It actually warrants a whole sermon series on its own. And I recognize this morning that I can't do it justice. But here's what I want you to notice. The New Testament often speaks of slaves and masters. And when it does, it regularly upends the thinking of the day and radically transforms the relationship between master and slave. It does that in 1 Corinthians 7. And here's what I want you to notice. If Paul applies this principle of remaining where we are when we came to Christ, if he applies that principle to slavery, the most extreme of work conditions, how much more should it apply to us in the 21st century today. Look at what he says. Verse 21. Were you a bondservant? Were you a slave when called? Look at his next words. Do not be concerned about it. Don't be concerned about it. Your job, what you do, it simply does not define you. Don't worry about what's next. Stay where you are. And then he adds, but if you can gain your freedom... Look, avail yourself of the opportunity. Look, if freedom is on the cards, sure, take it. But really, it's neither here nor there. Rather, remember that your freedom won't change who you are. You see, your freedom or your slavery, it doesn't define you. It doesn't create your identity. That is our what. What we do doesn't define us. Who we are. Look at this thinking in verse 22. He says, For, in other words, because, he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is something, is, and this is his identity, this is her identity, this is what you and I are, is a freedman of the Lord. That is, if you're a slave when you came to Christ, remember your status now. You're a freedman of the Lord. That is, you're a citizen of heaven. You're a royal priest. You are one of God's chosen people. You are his treasured possession. Who are you? You're a freed man in him. Likewise, he was freed when called. Yes, you may have your freedom, sunshine, but remember who you are. The free, you're actually bondservants of Christ. You're slaves of Christ. You're not free. Your status is actually slave because you are owned by Jesus and bound to obey him. Bound to obey him because you're a slave of Christ. Remember this, he says, verse 23, you were bought with a price, masters. So don't become bondservants of men. Don't, Don't change your what- by selling yourself into slavery. He then recites the principle again. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain, not on his own, but with God. God is with us in whatever work situation we find ourselves in. So brothers and sisters, how do we work? We work firstly by remembering that our what, what we do, does not define us. It's not who we are, which means that climbing the ladder just doesn't matter. Getting the promotion, well, it's neither good nor bad. It's, if it comes and it seems wise, take it. But don't sweat it. Be content wherever you are. So let me ask you this. How do you define yourself? If the word only Appears in your self description. I'm only a housewife. I'm only a maid. I only work in security. I'm only a professor. If the word only appears in your self description, you need to change how you work. You need to work as a freedman of the Lord, as a citizen of heaven, as a royal priest, as one of God's chosen people, as his treasured possession, because that is who you are. There is nothing only about you. And if as you describe yourself to others, and if you think about yourself to yourself, if as you do that you feel your chest sort of swell a little bit with a little bit of pride, as you say, I'm a, I'm a doctor. <laughs> I'm an engineer. Better still, I'm a pastor. <laughs> I'm a... If that's you, you need to change the way you work too. You you need to remember that you are just a slave. A slave of Christ, owned by him and operating under his orders. How do we work? Firstly, we work by remembering who we are in Christ and not being concerned by what we do. The second characteristic of how we work is that we're to work with integrity. Come with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Remember in our extraordinary series we looked at Ephesians chapter 5 and we heard that the result of being filled with the Spirit was a willingness to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives submitting to husbands and children submitting to parents. Flick to chapter 6 verse 5. There's one other group that submits. Let's see that being filled with the Spirit works itself out in submission between slaves and masters, as both work with integrity. Firstly, verse 5, bond servants. Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Work with integrity. Respond to your boss as you do Jesus with a good heart, sincerely, longing to do a good job, the kind of job that that Jesus would give a massive tick to. And he qualifies what he means by what he says next. He says, not by the way of eye service, as people pleases, not just working when the boss has his eye on you and then when his back is turned, picking up your phone and going back to the latest game you were playing. Not just doing the bare minimum, to keep the boss off your back, but doing a good job, a job that recognizes who we are, slaves of Christ, recognizes that when we work with integrity, when we work faithfully, we're actually doing the will of God. We're doing from the heart what he longs for us to do. So he says in in verse seven, rendering service with a goodwill to the Lord and not to man. That is, working how? Working recognising that we're ultimately working for our saviour, for the one who died for us. And that puts pay to any thought that we're only obliged to work with integrity for bosses who are good and kind. Not at all. Your real boss, my real boss, is Jesus, no matter what our earthly boss might be like. Ultimately, you and I Serve him. We're to serve Jesus with integrity. We work for him. And verse 8 we work knowing that whatever good we do, this will receive back from the Lord. That is, our ultimate pay packet comes not on the first of the month, but when Jesus returns. And it will come to us, no matter what our earthly status whether we're a bondservant or a free. Jesus will pay out and he will pay out in full. There's not going to be any fighting over wages or gratuities. Jesus will deliver for those who are working for him with integrity of heart. And I want you to notice too that Jesus is actually an equal opportunity employer. Look at verse 9. Masters... Do the same to them. In other words, masters, you're to work recognising, recognising that you're actually working for the Lord as well. You are not a free agent, bosses. You have a master as well. Masters, you're to work recognising that your master has his eye on you. So you too are to work with integrity. And at this point, Paul could have simply placed a full stop and moved on. But notice that he doesn't. He spells it out for masters. He says, and stop your threatening. Stop your threatening. That is, bosses, don't think for a moment that you can abuse your position of power. Don't don't think for a moment that using that imbalance of power between you and those who work for you for your own advantage. Masters, verse 9, recognize that he who is both your master. sorry, their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. In other words, Jesus will treat you fairly, which means that if you do not treat those in your employment fairly, Jesus is coming after you and he will give you exactly what you deserve. For those who work for you don't belong to you. They are Jesus' freed men. They're his and he will ensure that they get justice even if it comes at your expense. So if you're a boss, let me ask you this. How are you going to work with integrity? It's pretty simple really. You'll pay your staff on time and in full. You will ensure that they get all of their holidays. You'll pay them overtime when they work extra hours, not the minimum that you can think you can squeeze out of them. You'll ensure that they have all of the tools that they need to get the job done. You'll set reasonable KPIs. You'll set standards that encourage rather than crush. If you've got a maid at home, how would she describe your treatment of her? Does she get her full day off every week? Do you ask her to work more hours than you're allowed to by law? Are you using your power over her appropriately? Remember bosses, you will be held accountable by Jesus himself. So if you need to, get your act together today. And if you need to make amends, do it today. If you need to provide back pay, do it today if you owe time off organize it today where to work with integrity thirdly where to work with humility check out philippians 2 it's where paul basically says look coming to jesus should shape completely who we are He writes, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, if what God has done has had any impact on you at all, then verse 2 complete my joy. How? By being of the same mind, having the same love, that is, being of one accord and in one mind, that is, think and feel the same way that Jesus does, that is, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. And when he says nothing, that includes how we work. Don't do anything from selfish ambition or conceit, from rivalry or empty pride. Give up lobbying for promotion. Put aside any thought of running down your rival for a position. Banish any thought of claiming the prize for yourself. Expel any thoughts that you have of getting the glory for yourself. Rather, in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Now, what might that look like? Verse 4 gives us a bit of a window. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. At work, are you looking after number one? Or are you looking after the interests of your colleagues, putting their careers before your own? Are your clients and their needs, are your employees' needs and interests placed before and above your own? Here's a challenge for the madams, those who have maids. If you're a madam, let me ask you this. Do you consider your maid as more significant than you are? Do you see their needs more important than your own? And if you say that you do, let me ask you this. How do you express it practically day in and day out? Let me also ask you, what would your maid testify? Would she say that that is what you do, that she sees that you view her as more significant than you are? That's a challenge for bosses, isn't it? Bosses, do you think of your employees as more significant, that their needs are above yours? Now, just in case you're thinking, look, hang on, was that sounds really good in theory, but <laughs> there's just no way it's going to work out in practice. If that's you, remember verses 6 to 8. Remember Jesus, because for him, it was not theory. Jesus, whose greatest achievement, his greatest work, his glory was verse 6, that though he was in the form of God, he didn't account equality with God something to be grasped. He didn't cling to his rights. He didn't demand respect. He didn't pull rank, even though he was God himself. But verse 7 he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, of a slave. And being born in human likeness, he didn't put his own interests first. Rather, he counted you and I as more significant than him. He gave up every piece of his status for us. And then he took it further, didn't he? Verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death. And not just any death. The death that involved the greatest shame of all even death on a cross. Humility wasn't theory for Jesus and he expects it not to be theory for us either. Humility for Jesus was incredibly expensive, hugely costly for him and friends, we follow him which means it will cost us dearly as well. Now that's how Jesus worked. It's how we're to work as well, in humility, considering others more significant than ourselves, their needs of greater importance than our own. that's how we work. Which means fourthly, that we 'll work with a servant heart. Now, one of my favorite stories in the New Testament, and two of my favorite characters are James and John. Two of the disciples of Jesus, they're boneheads. Right, they would have played second row in rugby, I'm absolutely sure. They are just idiots. They're called the Sons of Thunder, and they come to Jesus one day and they ask for the ultimate job promotion. They wanted to be on Jesus' right and left hand when he comes in his glory. They wanted the highest place in the kingdom. And Jesus' response to them was firstly, guys, do you understand what such a promotion is going to cost you? Look at what he says in verse 38. Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptised with the baptism with which I'm baptised? Are you willing to die for this promotion? (laughs) Look at their response. Yeah, yeah, we can do that. Told you they are idiots. T's response to them was, guys, I'm going to suffer. All right? And if you want this position, you're going to suffer too. But you know what? That job, those seats, they're not actually mine to give. Now, I have no idea how the other 10 disciples discovered that James and John had had this conversation. It wouldn't surprise me because they're boneheads if they'd told the other 10. But either way, the other 10 were furious with James and John. And Jesus had to gather the disciples together to kind of have a work culture tutorial and set the disciples straight. Verse 42, Jesus called to them, called them rather to him and said, you know those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles? They lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. They play power games. They love the prestige. They love everybody running around after their every whim. They take every advantage that they can squeeze out of their position." But verse 43, very clearly, but it shall not be so among you. Never among you guys. See, here's the great reversal that's to shape our whole lives and our working lives included. Whoever would be great among you, if you want the seat next to me, if you want the prestige, if you want your what to be seen as wonderful... If you want want to be great, you must be a servant. And just in case we didn't get it, verse 44, and whoever will be first among you must be slave of all. And guys, this isn't theory. This is my reality, says Jesus. For even the Son of Man, that's me. I didn't come to be served even though that's what should happen. I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. How do we work? We work like Jesus worked, with a heart like his, with a servant heart that puts the needs of others before their own. We use our position not to serve ourselves, but to serve others. So let me ask you, What's your heart like? How are you serving and who are you serving? How are you using your position, no matter how great or small, how are you using where God has placed you to ensure those around you are served and cared for? And not theory, let's be specific, ladies and gentlemen. Can you name specific privileges perks and trappings of office that you are deliberately foregoing for the sake of others that they can be served if you feel your role doesn't come with the perks of office how are you still going about serving those around you above and below how are you serving them as you've been served by Jesus how's your heart does it long and delight to serve as Jesus did does your heart find joy in serving and willingly places itself at the disposal of others for their good? If that's you, let me say give thanks to God. For your heart is only like that because it is being shaped by the Spirit of God to be just like Jesus' heart. That is truly a work of God in you. Rejoice and give thanks. But if it's not you, it's time to ask God to do for you what you cannot do for yourself, to be given a new heart like his. So let me encourage you today. Ask for it. He'd love to do that work in you because he'd love to see you transformed into the image of his son because that will glorify him. How do we work? You and I. We work as slaves, as servants. The fifth characteristic that defines how we work is that we work with contentment. Check out what Paul says to his friend Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, pick it up at verse 6. He writes, But godliness with contentment is great gain. Why? Well, we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. We came empty-handed, we leave empty-handed. But, says Paul, but if we have, and I want you to notice, this is a very short list. But if we have just food and clothing, with these we'll be content. But verse 9, here's where work comes in because work's connected to money, and money's connected to both contentment on the one hand, but also riches on the other. But Paul says, but those who desire to be rich fall. Not might fall, not could fall, might possibly one day, if things don't go well for them, fall, but they fall. That is, they do fall. This is what happens they fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Why, verse 10? For the love of money, not money itself, but the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. And it is, isn't it? You've seen it in your own workplace and you've seen it in your own life the love of money, the desire for more, the lack of contentment, it sees us cutting all sorts of corners to take hold of our what. We cheat and we steal. And you know what? We get really good at justifying it, don't we? All right, I'm taking this because he owes me. All right? He won't notice. He's got plenty. We, we, all the time. We undermine our co-workers And we claim credit for the efforts of others. We overcharge our clients and we fail to pay invoices in full and on time. We climb over others to get to the top and instead of using our tongues to bless others, delighting in their success, we gossip and we run them down and we distort the truth and we exaggerate our own efforts, which is called what? Lying. Instead of working to bless others, We work to bless ourselves. Instead of working to glorify God, we work for our own glory. And so what happens? So often we find our what, what we long for, what we long to have, what we long to be, what we long to be next. We find our what overpowering the how, overpowering how God would have us work. And then very quickly we find ourselves lacking integrity and humility, and a servant heart. And once we start down that track, contentment becomes ever elusive, never attainable, and becomes death, spiritual death, through a thousand cut corners. You see, here's what happens. Not might happen, but has Paul says it is through this craving, this desire for more, more than contentment with food and clothing. It's through this craving for more that some have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Those of us who follow Jesus, we work for simple contentment. For the clothes on our back and the food on our table so that we're free to be generous with the rest. And we can do that because our hearts beat in time with our saviours. We can serve with what he's given us, trusting him to continue to provide rather than trusting what he's given us to provide. You know, our salaries and, and our savings and our superannuation, trusting them to provide. Now, if you're feeling like, you might actually need an antidote at this time for the love of money. Then check out verse 11. Paul says to Timothy, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Don't run after money. Sprint as hard as you can in the opposite direction. Run from the love of money and instead pursue pursue, sprint after, chase down these things, righteousness and godliness and faith and love and steadfastness and gentleness. They'll see godliness with contentment as a characteristic in our lives and protect us from the snare that plunges so many in Dubai into ruin. Because let's be honest, most of us came here because we were pursuing money, weren't we? Yeah. we got a problem in this place. We need to pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love and steadfastness and gentleness. and We've got to do it remembering Ecclesiastes chapter 5. It's one of my favourite parts of the whole of the Old Testament. The writer says, Behold, what I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and to drink and to find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. That's contentment, isn't it? To be able to eat and drink and enjoy your work each and every day that we live. That's the definition of contentment. But notice verse 19. and Notice where contentment comes from. He continues, everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions, and not just the wealth and possessions, but also given the power to enjoy them, to accept his lot and to rejoice in his toil. What is it? This is the gift of God. It doesn't come with the job. It doesn't come with the house or the car. or with, It doesn't come with any what. It's not attached to a what. It's the gift of God. The the contentment doesn't come when we get the right what. It doesn't arrive when we have enough stuff or when the promotion comes or when there are enough zeros in the bank account. Contentment, the power to enjoy all that we have, little or much, The ability to accept our lot, no matter what it is, the heart to rejoice in work, no matter what it involves, is purely the gift of God. It comes from nowhere else. Who does God give it to? Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and verse 24. He says, There is nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his store. That's what he said in chapter 5. This I saw is also from the hand of God. Again, it's the same idea. Well, who does God give this gift to? Verse 26, it's given to the one who pleases him. Not to everybody, but to the one who pleases him. God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. That is the ability to be content. Now, the world promises us that if we get hold of our what, if we get our what right, then we'll be content. God's word says, if our how is right, God will give us the gift of contentment. So that's why we flee the love of money and pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love and steadfastness and gentleness. And with them, God will also give us the gift of contentment. That's how we can work. With contentment, a servant heart, with humility and integrity, with our what in its right place. What I want to do is finish with two next steps. One's for all of us and one's particularly for parents. First of all, have a think about how you struggle with our how. What area of your how, look at the list, A, B, C, D, E, which one are you particularly struggling with at the moment? Get that one. Have you got one? Got one that you're struggling with? Okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to choose that one that you're struggling with. Got one? Good. Secondly, I want you to pick a Christian friend, someone who you're going to see this week. They may be sitting next to you right now they may be somewhere else. You'll see them at work or you'll see them at home or whatever. Pick a friend. Have you got that person in your mind now? Someone you'll see in person this week. Got that person? Okay, good. Three, I want you to get out your phone. Like not in theory, but in practice. Get out your phone right now. Take out your phone. It's in your pocket. It's in your bag. Take out your phone. I want you to send that person a WhatsApp. And the WhatsApp's really simple. I heard a cracker of a sermon today at church. I'd love to talk with you about it, can we have coffee? Three lines, cracker of a sermon, I want to talk with you about it, can we have coffee? And then you press send. So can you get your phones out? Can you find that person's address? And can you send them that text message? I got one from my wife this morning, it was just lovely. She was here at 10 o'clock. Okay, you got that? The next thing you do is you meet them And I want you to tell them when you meet them what part of your how you're struggling with. Read one of the passages that we've looked at today and then pray with them. And then fifthly, what I want you to do is organise to meet them again in a week. To reflect on how God has been at work in you over the week. Now, the brilliant part about doing this is you'll be encouraged by your Christian friend as you read the scriptures with them and they pray for you they'll be encouraged by you and your seriousness to take God's word on board. It's a win-win-win. So before I can go any further, you all need to press send because we're going to be checking your phones on the way out. Okay, so uh, do that. Okay, done that. The second next step is for parents. Now, parents, I'm going to ask you a diagnostic question And it's going to betray to you and to anybody else that you'll reveal it to whether your heart is driven by your what or God's how. You ready for the question? When your children's report card comes home from school, what causes you the greatest joy or the greatest sorrow? Where do you focus the marks or the comments about how your child is working. That is, do you, focus, do you focus on your child's what or their how? See, if you focus on their marks, the chances are it's your own personal what that is driving your work. And if it's driving you, Let me tell you, you will never work with contentment, with a servant heart, with humility, and with integrity. Not only that, you're modelling failure to your children. Failure of how God is calling us to work. You're modelling a way of living that will never bring contentment in your own life, nor in the lives of your children. Kaz, my wife, and I had a policy all the way through our kids' school years. We never, ever talked to them about their marks. Not once. We only ever spoke to them about their effort. About their heart for learning, their how. About how they went and were engaged in their schoolwork. Because, you see, here's the thing. Marks actually come from God. God. If he gave them a good brain, they'll do okay. If he gave them an average brain, they'll do average. And you know what? Most kids are average. That's what average means. (laughs) Ah, my kids are average, and guess what? So are yours. I know you think they're special, but they're average. As parents... We've got to remember that our kids' what? Their marks, their career, it will not bring them contentment. Only their how will. And that's if and only if they take on God's how of working. So, parents, let me ask you how are you working? How are you training your kids to work? How are you setting them up for a godly life of contentment? Or are you setting your kids up on the treadmill of endlessly chasing a what that will never leave them satisfied? Let me tell you, they will follow your example. So make it a godly one. Let me pray. Our gracious God and our loving Heavenly Father, you've taught us from your word this afternoon how to work. You've shown us our identities in Christ and in him alone. You've called us to work as your son has worked, with integrity, with a heart that beats in time with his, with humility, and you've promised contentment. And so, Father, we pray that you would shape us and change us so that this how of working marks us out, changing us, changing our families, changing our workplaces, changing our city and our world. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.